Policy Centre podcast. Increased need across the world means that the humanitarian funding gap is greater than ever before. To meet this need, humanitarian agencies must think creatively. And while there have been significant dividends, there have also been many challenges and risks. At the 2018 Australasian Aid Conference, this panel presented recent desk research from the Humanitarian Advisory Group and discussed issues including the appropriateness and viability of establishing a joint funding mechanism in the Australian context. Good afternoon, last session of the day. Um, my name's Kate Sutton, I'm with Humanitarian Advisory Group um, and I'm chairing the panel discussion this afternoon. Um, so, the purpose of this discussion this afternoon is really to unpack both the desirability but also the feasibility of establishing a joint funding mechanism in Australia for humanitarian response. Um, this panel is um, quite a timely panel in many ways. Um, Last year there were um, discussions about setting up a joint funding mechanism um, and some of you have probably been involved in some of the work that was done around the Rohingya crisis last year to start looking at this. Um, and it's also on the table for a number of the um, Australian NGOs at the moment. Um, in that light, I guess I want to flag that um, all the panel members and ourselves want to make this a really robust and open discussion. Um, and you know, one of the things that I personally will feel very disappointed about if we um, leave at the end of the day is if we've all just, you know, kind of um, shared niceties over this because it's contentious and it's difficult. Um, and it's in those difficult conversations that we can actually start crafting solutions and figuring out how to move the conversation forward. In order to do that, we have um, the most incredible panel and um, I'm going to give a big shout out first to Manisha Thomas, who's um, down here because... Manisha's travelled all the way from Geneva. I had to bribe her with uh, lots of gifts. To, uh, and she had to put up with staying with me and my kids for the last week. So she's, uh, um, but Manisha is the coordinator of the Emergency Appeals Alliance. So Manisha has been working with the joint funding mechanisms for all the different countries, of which there are many, and she'll be able to give us more detail. But um, she brings today that sort of understanding of how it works in different countries and then how we could apply it to Australia. So, thank you, Manisha. Um, we also have with us today Mark Purcell, who is the Chief Executive Officer on, of ACFID, um, and has worked for many years in the sector, um, and brings um, you know, many of those dialogues and conversations and representation of all of the Australian NGOs to the table. Um, Melissa Gill is the Managing Partner um, from, from the Behavioural Architects. And I'm also incredibly excited to have Melissa here because one of the things we wanted around the conversation today was a different voice. Um, so Melissa's not from the aid sector, she's a behavioural economist, um, and she'll be sharing with us some of the reflections on how that applies to when we're thinking about joint funding. Um, we also have Peter Walton with us, Director International Australian Red Cross, um, who's been very incremental in lots of the thinking around joint funding mechanisms and contributing to that conversation in Australia. Manisha Thomas, I've already introduced. And Jamie um, is Vista, who's the first, secretary, first Assistant Secretary and Humanitarian Coordinator um, at DFAT, um, and has also been involved in that dialogue with the Australian NGOs um, over the past couple of years. So thank you so much to all of you for being here. Um, in terms of the structure for this panel discussion, um, we're not going to be doing formal presentations. I'm going to be posing questions um, to various members of the panel, um, and they'll be sharing some of their reflections. We're hoping to... Um, have that format for sort of between 45 minutes to an hour. 
leaving sort of a good half an hour to 40 minutes for you to all participate and ask the questions that you have or contributions you would like to make from the floor. So, I might kick off um, with possibly the most important question around the joint funding mechanisms, which is really the question around what is the problem we are trying to solve? Um, by establishing a joint funding mechanism, how will this actually contribute to improved humanitarian outcomes? And I might pose that question first to Peter, if you're happy to kick mm -hmm. us off with your reflections on that. Thank you. Um, thank you, and good afternoon. Um, we have been pretty vocal as Australian Red Cross on this issue. Um, I think when people think of Red Cross, they often, well, we often joke that they think of uh, blood and floods. You know? So <laughs> dealing with disasters and humanitarian response is core business to us. And you know, as a humanitarian organisation and you know, an enormous movement around the world, anything that results in better humanitarian outcomes is something that we want to be part of that dialogue. When it comes to joint fundraising, you know, uh, built within that question, we, we think it's really important um, to always find ways where there's better collaboration amongst uh, humanitarian actors. But to do that in a meaningful way really does require understanding the problem that you're seeking to solve. And I think uh, one of our challenges within this has been, is the problem around just how we raise more money in Australia? And I reflect on that because... When a natural disaster hits, and especially hits this region, um, Australian Red Cross often doesn't have a lot of difficulty in generating support. Um, if there's a protracted crisis in uh, a part of Africa, you know, we, we often reflect that no one is interested. So if the issue is raising resources, then you know, let's explore how a collective effort might raise more, and if, it, if it, in fact it would. The flip side of that, and our greatest concern, I guess, to uh, Australian Red Cross in everything that we do is uh, how do the efforts and our partnerships and the way that we work result in better humanitarian outcomes? And actually, um, the ability to actually generate funds in any particular market uh, is a proxy measure for engagement with that particular community, but it, does it always translate into uh, being best positioned, best placed? Uh, and most effective on the ground, uh, and how would we hold ourselves accountable to be able to do things in the smartest possible way? So we reflect on um, you know this issue around joint mechanism is well, I think it's really important that we don't uh, jump to a solution without defining the problem that we seek to solve, and that's going to be different in many contexts. Um, so that's one part, and I guess the second part of it would be. Uh, how do we also ensure that whatever we do do together um, is uh, aligned with a, a number of the directions that we're really pushing for within the humanitarian sector and localization being one of those. Whatever we do within joint fundraising and uh, I guess more collaborative efforts, how, how does that also align with making sure that we're doing it in a way which strengthens local actors? Wonderful. Okay. Thank you, Peter. That's okay. great um, kick-off. And I guess that idea of not jumping to a solution without defining the problem. It would be interesting, Manisha, maybe to get your reflections on the extent to which um, that has driven what's happened in other countries. Like, have they been very effective at defining that problem? I think it... No, good afternoon, everybody, first of all. <laughs> Thank you for the nice, kind introduction, Kate. It really depends on the different countries. So within the Emergency Appeals Alliance, you have 11 different countries, many with very different histories about how they've come about. So in Sweden, one of our oldest members, for example, they started after World War 
one, um, and it was really about raising money for children and whatnot, so they've got a different history. In the UK, it started around Biafra, if I remember correctly, so they did see a problem where there was a need to raise more money and to be able to put that money to better humanitarian responses around the world. And I think what we do see very much today is that there are greater and growing humanitarian needs and the pot is not big enough in terms of the money coming in to be able to meet those needs. So if we're looking at it purely from, yes, we need to raise more money globally for humanitarian needs, that's definitely one problem to solve. But then I think you have to look very much at the Australian context and the market and how your public will respond to an appeal should it be launched. Um, because the public's interest in a particular crisis is also a huge driver behind whether or not you're going to be able to raise funds. For example, with the Bangladesh refugee situation that we had last year, many of the members in the Emergency Appeals Alliance weren't able to launch appeals because there was very little media interest in their countries. The public was just not generally interested enough to be able to raise enough money. And so there's also a need to kind of look at perhaps not just having a joint appeal around a particular crisis, but doing what some of the other members do in Sweden and Switzerland, for example, they have an annual fundraising event so that you're able to raise funds for some of those smaller emergencies that the public may not be so vested in. So that you are able as a humanitarian community to say, yes, there are great needs, and even if we're not able to raise money from the public for that specific crisis, we have other ways of perhaps raising those funds. So it's been very much within the alliance, within the individual members, the understanding that they are there as humanitarian organizations and they should be able to respond to humanitarian needs on the ground, but then they look at who is best placed to respond to those needs and looking at different ways to raise those funds so that they are able to have effective humanitarian outcomes. But they're also very clear that they should follow humanitarian principles, that they follow standards such as FEAR, the core humanitarian standard, the principles of partnership, which is fundamental to the localization element that you raised, Peter, and there's also others that, like the Canadian Humanitarian Coalition, they have a pooled fund that they're able to draw upon for smaller emergencies. So sometimes, even in the media, you won't get a, a huge response. You may not even have that many of your members going to be able to respond in a particular country. So they look at who is best placed to respond, and they're able to draw down funds so that they can respond when bigger funds are not available. So I do think it's like really looking at how can you be most effective in responding to humanitarian needs, and ensuring that the best placed organizations are able to respond. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, understanding then very much that that Australian perspective and context is so important, it would be really interesting to understand from a donor perspective, Jamie, maybe what you see as the need or the gap um, that, that currently exists that we could maybe address with this mechanism. Thanks, Pat. Um, I actually don't think the main problem we're trying to solve is raising more money. I, th I think a joint mechanism will raise more money. That, that's it. I think the main issue is that we need to break the reality that humanitarian crises, that moving away from humanitarian disasters being a competitive environment for agencies and that driving fragmented, top-down response. And what that means is that, you know, uh, under... Um, a mechanism where every agency got their own appeals out, they're competing for media stuff, they're competing for Australians on the ground, for stories, and <coughs> having been involved in localisation discussion this morning, a much more top-down response to a humanitarian crisis than one that's looking at how resources that are available are best meeting the needs on the ground. So I can say from the government perspective, we would see three things as, as, as a critical thing that a joint mechanism would offer. One of them is a streamlined mechanism for the Australian public to 
understand and contribute to a crisis, whether it's a protracted crisis like um, uh, a situation uh, in, in South Sudan or whether it's a sudden onset disaster such as we've got at the moment in Tonga. The second thing is it's a mechanism which gives confidence that the funds raised are going to those agencies or organisations best position to respond. And that may not be every agency that's going to join appeal and that may be a good thing. You know, and it may even be partnering with a range of organisations that uh, are responding and can be supported through that mechanism without it. And the third thing is that there's a clear mechanism that can provide reporting back to the Australian public about what's been achieved, including the challenges and realities that can have both a reporting information but an evaluation aspect of it in terms of what's been learned, what's sort of driving it. And I think they're the three things that if we could deliver, I think we wouldn't just raise more money. We wouldn't just we would result in a more informed and and uh, engaged Australian public, where frankly we are uh, losing um, uh, trust and confidence to an extent. And uh, uh, the third thing is, I think we would be able to support the humanitarian reforms that have been outlined in the Grand Bargain, the World Humanitarian Summit, in a much more effective way. Wonderful. Thank you. And it's, you know, really great to hear you touching on the having a more informed and engaged Australian public, because that's exactly the reason we've also got Mel along in terms of helping us understand um, how the Australian public does perceive aid and, and how then that joint funding mechanism needs to inform that. So that's really um, helpful. Mark, from ACFID's perspective and sort of representing some Australian agencies, let me block your slides. So, good day, everybody. I'm just going to show some slides just to contextualise this uh, around the market in which humanitarian fundraising occurs because uh, we did have a, a deck in Australia, it's called the IDEC, uh, it operated in the 70s and the 80s and uh, it did joint fundraising, promotion, the things that we've just been talking about uh, and it collapsed because of market forces. So why would that be the case? Well, there's 55,000 economically significant charities in Australia uh, and that means they're out fundraising competitively. And 10 new charities register every day with uh, the ACNC, uh, the Charities Regulator. And so it's a very competitive market space there for public attention. And any of you who walked to a shopping mall on the weekend would know that. Uh, there's many of our members plus others seeking to, to leverage public donations. And you can see that public donations, the blue line, have uh, increased uh, a lot over the years. Um, uh, but the, the facts are, uh, despite population growth, the average donation per giving taxpayer, according to the ATO, uh, peaked in 1983. <coughs> so it is a very competitive marketplace there. And notwithstanding there is a humanitarian community and ACFID, we're a central point for collaboration in this sector, I think in fundraising, a set, different set of dynamics operate in the sector. Um, this slide here shows, uh, well, there's two, two sets of data here. So one shows different not-for-profit sectors in Australia, and the first one shows uh, government funding to those sectors, and you can see the highlighted yellow one is international, which is our sector, Australian ACFID members, and their level of government funding they receive in relation to other sectors. Then this is public fundraising, and what you can see is that uh, ACFID members some others in international activities are some of the, the highest beneficiaries of public support, notwithstanding we work in that much, we're a small part of that much bigger not-for-profit sector encompassing all of those different um, agencies. 
And there's historical reasons for that, uh, particularly the importation of face-to-face -face fundraising in the early 2000s from the UK. So that is your chuggers uh, working in shopping malls, but it has been highly successful and uh, big humanitarian Australian NGOs were early adopters of that and rode that wave of increased public donations and, and getting large donor databases. Um, now everyone is doing it, and it's a, it, it's a what uh, fundraisers call a mature product. It's in decline, and it has a number of other issues. Um, this is ACFID's members, and this is our, our sort of, uh, well, not our most recent data, but uh, this table shows that ACFID members in the financial year 2015-16 raised $1.64 billion. 57% of that was $930 million was from community fundraising. Now, that would include humanitarian appeals. 18% came from DFAT grants. That would include um, uh, the, the, the former humanitarian partnership agreement, now the, the AHP, and then you can see there are other sources of funding, which can be UN agencies, philanthropic funding, private sector investment, uh, retail, etc. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a healthy sector and it's continued to grow overall, but it's, you know, it's certainly not at the, the rate uh, of years past for the reasons I said earlier. And then finally, Um, this shows public donations for ACFID member humanitarian appeals uh, since 2011. And um, there's not been a significant increase in funding for appeals over the last five years. There, you know, there's been a spike in particular years because there were more disasters in particular years, uh, such as um, the Nepal earthquake or Cyclone Pam in Vanuatu in 2014-15. Uh, um, but that shows sort of the, 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 the trend. So... Um, the final thing to say, so, is definitely things have can help uh, accentuate public giving. So we've worked with the ABC for quite a few years to get ACFID members that are code signatories, signatories are a code of conduct, promoted uh, when the ABC does big responses, appeals, uh, to, to appeals, and they list ACFID members. So that, that helps demonstrate public trust. And so it also helps boost media profile when the national broadcaster gets behind that. So I think you know, that'll be part of what we can grow. Uh, it can also emphasise uh, that there are a trusted group of organisations that have agreed to adhere to a standard, uh, a national regulatory standard recognised and supported by the Australian Government, DFAT and the Australian Charities Regulator. So we'll come to match funding later, but I just wanted to give that context because any intervention around greater collaboration of fundraising uh, to get better humanitarian response. This is the context we're operating in. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, so in before I move to the, the next question, maybe just to frame some of those um, areas, because the context is obviously incredibly important. So globally, we're looking at this um, decreasing funds, increasing needs. In terms of the Australian market, um, Jamie described what, uh, you know, a fragmented, a top-down approach. So we're actually needing to change the way that we do Australian aid as well. It's not just a global question. Um, and then the context around the fact that we are operating in a, in a stagnating market here in Australia. So I guess taking all those um, drivers and context questions um, into account. Manisha, I'd love to um, pick your brains a bit more around what we can learn about the approach we should be taking in Australia to move this forward. And I think, you know, you've now had how long in Australia? 
Pending. Well over a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> local now. Um, and have met with a number of the Australian agencies and been able to immerse yourself in the conversation. So it would also just be fascinating to get your reflections on, okay, what can we learn from other contexts, but what are you seeing playing out in Australia? So it's been really fascinating. The timing of this trip has seems to have come at a very fortunate time in the fact that there are these conversations happening. And as Mark said, it's not the first time. I think this is like the fifth time, if I understand correctly, that this has been attempted in Australia. Um, and you do definitely have a challenging market, it would seem. And so understanding your market and the population, how they give is extremely important to understand. At the same time, and I think Melissa is going to come back to this, you can influence the behavior of how people start to look at crises and emergencies and humanitarian response. So you do have the possibility to kind of shift how people are looking at things. And I do think that's something we should probably come back to. What you have seen in other contexts is that when you do have a joint appeals mechanism, the public is generally much more willing to give to a joint mechanism when they don't have to figure out which organization to give to. In Canada, for example, they did a survey about four years ago and looked at sort of how willing Canadians would be to give to a joint mechanism, and over 50% said they would give money to a joint mechanism, um, and many of those had never given before. Most of the countries where there is an appeals mechanism, they end up having a market that grows the donations. So, for example, in Canada, 72% of their donors were brand new donors, hadn't given to any of the members within the humanitarian coalition before. And that generally seems to be the case with all the joint appeals mechanisms. The other really, so as in there's, I know there's definitely some fear amongst Australian NGOs as to, oh wait, my donor base may be compromised. The other really fascinating thing that you've seen in the UK is they did a study to see if they were kind of cannibalizing the market when they did an appeal through the Disastrous Emergency Committee, because they'll do appeals for two or three weeks. And what they found, in fact, was that appeal actually triggered giving across the board. So in the weeks after the appeal, the number of people that started giving to other charities actually increased compared to before the appeal. So understanding your market and the way you're able to get people to start thinking about emergencies is extremely important. I do think the, the IDEC that was adopted back in the 70s, I think, really took the model of the DEC from the UK. Interestingly, in the Emergency Appeals Alliance, we started to look at could we harmonize our reporting across the members as one of those grand bargain commitments. And when I looked at the different types of reporting, the DEC's reporting format is incredibly <coughs> complex and detailed and quite burdensome, I'll be quite frank, compared to what other countries have for their reporting. So I do think that you've got a really golden opportunity to take what's out there amongst these 11 different appeals mechanisms and pick and choose what will be best for you so that you're not going to an extreme where you're going to be overburdening NGOs or the Red Cross um, in terms of your reporting or what formats and evaluations and monitoring needs to be done, but finding ways that you can also complement, for example, what they do in Germany where their formats are very much aligned with the reporting for the government. So if there are many organizations getting DFAT money, then having a format that's similar for reporting or monitoring and evaluation that is aligned can then really reduce that kind of burden. Um, so I think there's like different areas that you can look at. Uh, and I, as I mentioned before, you know, Sweden and Switzerland doing an annual mechanism of raising money is another thing to look at or a pooled fund. So kind of trying to find a way to get a blended mechanism that provides financing that's able to meet those different needs through different varieties is really important as well. In terms of what I've seen in Australia so far, what I have noticed is that there are several different conversations happening but without everybody coming around the table. So there's a lot of rumors, 
Um, and there's a lot of speculation as to what's happening amongst the six AHP NGOs plus the Red Cross. I'm calling them the six plus one because I don't think that the starting point of starting with the AHP was the right one. If you're going to start a mechanism, ideally it should have been disjointed from the government. No offense, Jamie. But I do think that the NGOs and the Red Cross need to sort out what's the problem you're solving, what are the criteria for who should be involved in that, and what is your approach, how are you going to do it, but what you've seen happen with Rohingya crisis is you had what was not at all a joint appeals attempt with that. Putting a number of logos on a website is like joint marketing or joint promotion. That's not a joint appeals mechanism. France tried that. They put up a website about eight years ago, tried to raise money and have realized in eight years that that's actually not bringing them any money or any extra money. So they are now developing a joint appeals mechanism. They've learned the lessons that that was not an appeals mechanism. Whereas they look at the other 10 countries, because Spain hasn't just started a year ago and they haven't launched an appeal, but all other 10 countries, they're able to raise more funds when they go under a joint, joint logo, joint name. So it's not about your individual logos, it's about selling a brand in the country and getting that ownership and the trust in that brand that can then encourage others to come together and give. So I really do think there's a need for those different conversations that are happening to happen together. There needs to be a much more honest, transparent conversation between the different NGOs and the different groups of NGOs and Red Cross that are having those conversations. Because right now I see a slightly divided community, um, which I, I, as a, coming from an NGO coordination background, I find that really unfortunate. So I do think there's a need to urgently kind of bring everybody around the table. I think there needs to be clarity on what this pilot is that is gonna happen. I strongly recommend you don't do joint promotion. I say try a full appeal mechanism. Go full hog. I mean, don't try and do what the French did and then eight years later figure out, oh, that was a bad idea and we've wasted eight years. So really, I'd say try it and then start with a six plus one, but be transparent about the fact that it is a pilot. You're going to try it with a small group that you've been able to get around the table, including the consortium behind them potentially, and then say, look, once we've tried it, tested it, and evaluated it, then we figure out what kind of a mechanism will work best in Australia. So and then I do think the CEOs need to make some clear decisions quite quickly. And then I think it's important for the organizations that are involved to talk to their members of their federations in other countries to see how it has been working so they can see what's worked well in different countries or not. Um, I know that some will say the DEC is far too complicated. Others will say, oh, we're not so sure about this mechanism. So really try and pick and choose from the best because the Emergency Appeals Alliance members are fully willing to share what they've done. There's no point in reinventing the wheel in Australia. Steal as much as you can. <laughs> Wonderful, thank you. And we will and be coming back at the end and all the panel members will be talking about what they think are, are the important next steps. So I know we're sort of moving into some of that space, but um, we'll be revisiting it. Um, but based on some of um, Manisha's reflections, I guess it would be interesting to have a, a bit of thought around what are the barriers to that conversation? The fact that we have um, sort of a disjointed discourse at the moment, what are the barriers that have led to that? And what are some of the enablers to bring us out of it? And maybe Peter, if we could um, start with your reflections on that. Yeah, my, my mother, when I was a young boy, taught me that money is the root of all evil. <laughs> and um, I, I, when I reflect on this, I mean, as I said right at the start, anything that results in better humanitarian outcomes, I think we almost have an obligation to put on the table, discuss and, and rise above our individual organisational priorities. Easy said, hard to do. And I think that is part of the challenge that we have around how do we have a mature dialogue, not just around how we collectively raise money, but how we collectively work towards better humanitarian outcomes. When uh, Mark alluded to tropical cyclone PAM, 
125 international organizations um, responded to that cyclone, uh, a country with about 250,000 people, often bypassing local organizations. I absolutely think that, um, you know, I don't quite agree with what Jamie said around money isn't, bit, isn't the only problem. There are clearly funding gaps for particular crises around the world. But when we do come together, yeah, maybe we can raise more. But are we mature enough as a sector to have a discussion around how do we use those funds in the best possible way? How do we ensure that we're not just uh, having a mechanism which is frankly, just dividing the, the pie in, in so many small pieces and not feeling confident that we have the accountability to the Australian public. So I think that, that is one barrier that we foresee, which I think we need to rise above. I think there's also something um, about the, the alignment of messaging. Um, one of the, the lessons, and I, I agree with what Manisha said around the, the, what we did with the Rohingya crisis was, we came together around a joint promotion. How do we shine a spotlight on this together? And there was a, a landing page and the, the public could go and choose which organization that they wanted to support. But part of the challenge there was, you know, getting those organizations to agree on messaging, language, imagery. Is it strength-based? Is it deficit-based? Um, at what point would you actually trigger things in future disasters? Is it when an international call for action is made or is it when uh, requested? Or is it as soon as you think that there's a humanitarian crisis? So there's some pragmatic and practical considerations around the alignment of how organisations work. But one of the fundamental challenges, I think, is, is that maturity of the sector. If, um, if we were to have a joint funding mechanism that raised funds and none of the members within that consortium or whatever you want to call it, were best placed, how prepared would they be to fund those organisations that perhaps are? And I think that's a challenge, because uh, money may be the root of all evil. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, Jamie, it would be interesting to get your reflections on the barriers and enablers, but also maybe that question Manisha raised in terms of what is the government's role then in terms of playing either a broker or being engaged in, in that process, I guess? I'm more than happy to have a shot at it. I'm just wondering whether Melissa wants to... Melissa's going to have her whole own... Oh, is she? Okay, set, yeah. Right. Oh, we need to stop saying I'm quiet now, but just wait. <laughs> I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm not ignoring this. We, we, we have a strategy in place. Uh, so on the main barriers, look, uh, you said to be frank, um, uh, I think one of the biggest issues is uh, what the board's um, performance indicators are for a CEO, and one of those is uh, increased revenue. One of the quickest ways to raise revenue is during a humanitarian crisis. And the simple reality is that the incentives that were in place is for agencies to be ensuring they're in the best position to maximise their brand and their funding and their raising going forward. And I think it's a conversation that boards need to have about understanding what the implications are for the humanitarian principles and humanitarian period. And um, I, I take... And, and I think we're going to have an opportunity to have a, a, a chat a bit later, so I won't go into all the guts and all of the you know, I agree, the Rohingya thing wasn't a joint appeal. I'll be honest enough to say it was probably the government poking the agencies in the eye. Um, and to be completely honest, um, I think there's a moral responsibility that government, NGOs, who say that they're there to ensure they're meeting the needs of the most vulnerable and most affected, the mechanisms that are raising money and the money that's flowing is doing that. And frankly, I don't think that's the case today. 
I'm not saying that agencies don't do fantastic work. Um, but I've worked on both sides. I've worked with NGOs, I've worked in government, and I think we can do a lot better. Joint mechanism isn't the only answer, but it's certainly one of the biggest issues that is creating the political economics of the system, which is undermining the efforts of a whole lot of people on the ground who are trying to implement principles around localisation, um, common assessments, uh, common cash programs, etc. When you're hearing from the above, we've got to have our brand out there, we've got to have our program, and frankly it means that if agencies raise a lot of money and they don't have a lot of networks on the ground, completely frankly I've seen them buy networks. You know, and that undermines exactly the principles we're talking about in terms of respecting the, the voice of vulnerability and others. So, I mean, that's where um, I, you know, I think the challenge has to be coming from. And I think that the incentives around uh, humanitarian action, the, the, the funding driving, I, I, I think Peter and I may or may not agree on this point, but it's... it's it's the issue that without us getting that right, then the money ends up being a disruptor rather than it being a answer. And the simple reality is agencies have to, every agency who's going to be part of a joint appeal or a joint mechanism needs to give up something to gain a greater good, basically. And that's a difficult thing when uh, you've got the current, as, as Mark just said, very competitive market environment. Um, but, you know, why wouldn't you want a situation where potentially the indicator for an organisation is that their revenue's gone down that year, but they're able to demonstrate they've contributed to a better humanitarian mm -hmm. outcome in a certain situation? Surely that's got to be a, something you'd be looking at. Than, you know, it, yeah. it's, not a, it's not easy on one of the rest of my And just sorry, to finish the last thing about the government, it's, it's, yeah, this has been going on for 20, 30 years. Um, I won't go through all the ins and outs discussions I've had with CEOs on this, but... You'll never get to a situation where I think it, it, it has to be disruptive if you're going to get to that point. And I think part of where we're at the moment is hopefully enough disruption that there's a, an acknowledgement that we sort of try and sort of come together on it. And um, yeah. Great. Thank you. And in some ways, what happened with the Rohingya response has been a disruptor in terms of even the fact we're here having this conversation. So, Mark particularly as representing sort of the whole breadth of NGOs in Australia, no pressure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, the barriers and enables, enablers from ACFID's perspectives. Sure. Look, I'd, I'd like to give an example of where I think uh, there's been real success in increasing, getting a greater public response to a disaster. And um, in 20. 11, uh, the government ran a dollar-for-dollar dollar initiative uh, around the Horn of Africa. And it was... The, some of the features of it is that it involved reaching 9 million Australians. Uh, it raised uh, $13.5 million. It uh, was starting at a time after the media coverage of the crisis had peaked. It was a slow-onset disaster, as you might recall, so it was, wasn't the catastrophic earthquake or tsunami uh, that commands media attention. There had been media attention, but it, it had waned. That had been three months before, and it was sort of leading up to the Christmas appeal period, so it wasn't sort of an optimal time for agencies in a competitive marketplace to be running appeals. Um, nevertheless, uh, it was very effective in uh, raising 
a whole lot of new money because agencies were actually winding down their appeals for that crisis at that point in time. And the reason it was successful was because it was matched funding from the government, dollar for dollar. Now, the mechanics of it were atrocious and gave uh, people in Ausade and in the NGO sector a lot of headaches because it was a Kevin Rudd initiative and it was like, make it happen. Uh, but it worked. It was very successful. Boards liked it. The public liked it because the public uh, in a competitive market space uh, like a bargain. And if the government is going to match their dollar with another dollar and it's already tax deductible, that makes <laughs> sense to them. And private sector also came on board. I remember the debate about uh, whether uh, Oxfam should be allowed to compartment with Woolworths and get donations through the cash register and whether that would be uh, allowed in this, you know, in this particular mechanism. And ultimately, I think it was. But, you know, corporates wanted to get on board. So uh, it leveraged the media. So the media really reinvested in the whole exercise. They liked it as well. Now, it didn't have collaborative websites. It didn't have a, a sort of a carving up of donor databases and sharing uh, new donors that occurs with the deck and so on, all of that apparatus. And uh, it, it didn't exist, but it worked. People that were involved in running it probably would say differently because they had the headache of running it. But in terms, so I just think if you want to reach out, you can really do it. And the value of it is, it wasn't a closed or a small group. So each NGO has its own constituency. So Muslim Aid in Australia is a very, one of the fastest growing NGOs in Australia in the international space. It's gone from a $2 million organisation to over $25 million. It taps into a community in Australia that perhaps World Vision and other agencies don't. It's been also running appeals for Bangladesh and the Rohingya. So it, it, it should be able to participate in, in, in this type of market, uh, in these type of collective endeavours. Shows to other agencies, there shouldn't be a sort of a... Um, a carving off. I think if organisations have their own reach into the public, they should be able to leverage that. And I think government match funding can be very, very helpful. And I think the most recent example through Hinga, where the government uh, selected two agencies, which is what the Canadian government does with their joint appeals mechanism, is actually a good way to play it. So you can, uh, you can. We, I think we should explore that. Great. Thank you, Mark. Um, now, I promised to give Mel her moment in the, in the life as well, and we were being strategic, we weren't just ignoring her. Um, so, one of the really big enablers um, that's come up a lot is around increased engagement with the public, and Jamie pointed to that at, at the beginning as well. And I think the big thing that I've learned even from my very initial conversations with Mel has been that that only works if we do it right. Um, and so, testing whether or not a joint funding mechanism brings in more money will depend on how we sell the joint funding mechanism. So um, I'm really excited because um, Mel will be able to share with us some of her wisdom around how that works. Perfect, thank you. Thank you very much, Kate, and thank you for having me here this afternoon. I do say I, I feel a little bit like a black sheep of this panel. <laughs> I, have, I have very little experience in humanitarian aid, um, and it's not my area of expertise, which it seems that that is the rest of the panel. Um, my area of expertise is in understanding behaviour. Um, so I work for an organisation called the Behavioural Architects. Um, we are a global organisation, and we specialise in taking the latest insights from behavioural science and applying them to behaviour. So how can we better understand behaviour? and how can we better influence behaviour. Um, we have offices in London, Shanghai, Sydney, and Melbourne. So really for us, it's about how we can utilise the insights from behavioural science. We talk a lot about the thing called behavioural economics. Can I just get a show of hands of anyone who's ever heard of behavioural economics? Okay, that's good. Anyone who's done any reading in behavioural economics? Okay, great. 
So look, what we try and do is always define our terms. It sounds like everyone here knows what behavioural economics is, and this is how we define it. We define it as a scientific model of human behaviour, which acknowledges and embraces the fact that we all, all of us, everyone in this room, have inherent biases in the way that we make decisions. The more that we can understand what those biases are and the way that they affect our behaviour, the more that we can understand behaviour and ultimately influence it. Um, these are just some of the books that you might have read, that people might have been seeing, that have been released in about the last five to ten years. Um, two of these books here, so Thinking Fast and Slow there on the left, written by Daniel Kahneman, and Nudge, written by um, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. Those two authors have both won Nobel Prizes for the work that they've done in this space. And I think that you know, it recognises how powerful behavioural economics is and how powerful it is becoming, not only in policy, but also in, in the private sector, at influencing behaviour. Um, I think the way that we like, an analogy that we like to use for behavioural economics is it's like a more powerful telescope, in a sense. If we're trying to understand behaviour, it gives us a more realistic view of what is going on with behaviour. <coughs> Much to our delight, we have been working with the team uh, at ACFID and really looking specifically at one type of behaviour. So we have been doing a research project, and we're still currently doing a research project with them, um, around reducing the amount of unsolicited bilateral donations sent during times of humanitarian crisis. It's been a fascinating project, and I think in the conversation certainly that I've had with Kate, what it's enabled us to do is to bring um, today some big, broad insights around the way some of the biases, the cognitive biases that affect the way people donate, um, and how we can unpack that. So, I won't be talking about the, the specific detail of this project today, but more some of the big broad insights that have, that have been surfaced. So what I wanted to do really was to share some of these. What I have done here on the right is to define a behavioural objective, which is something that we always work with with our projects. What is the type of behaviour that we are trying to change? What is the ideal behaviour? So I have articulated this as to maximise funds raised in Australia during times of humanitarian crisis. That could well be wrong based now <laughs> on the discussion that has been happening. I think the point here is, you know, and I think some of the other panel members have been talking about this, define the problem. This may well be the wrong problem, but the point here is to define the behaviour you are trying to achieve and focus on that. Everything else is superfluous, really. So the first insight that I wanted to share, or the first bias, is something called System 1 and 2. So this is, um, psychologists have determined that we all have two systems of our mind in terms of the way that we think. And when we look at donating funds in times of humanitarian crisis, what we've seen through our research is that people operate mostly in a system one mode of thinking. So let me explain to you what that is. System one is very automatic, it's quick, it's emotional, it's intuitive, and it reacts to cues and looks for patterns. System two is very conscious much more effortful, very deliberate, very logical. You know, you're exploring possibilities and probabilities. What is so interesting about this is traditional economic theory had us all in system two all the time. So if I gave you some options, you would all sit, you would take the time, and you would weigh them up very, very logically, because we're all very rational human beings. You know, that's the idea of system two. What behavioral science has proven is that is not the case. For the most part, we are in system one. And it's because system two is difficult. It's very, very effortful for us. So this has huge implications on the way that we understand behaviour. 
We love this quote here from Daniel Kahn, and this is very, very reflective of what we saw in the research um, around UVDs. But when information is scarce, which is a common occurrence, System 1 operates as a machine for jumping to conclusions. So what we saw in our project, um, one of the big insights was when in times of humanitarian disaster, people don't stop and take time out of their days to work out, now which organisation am I going to give money to? And how am I going to do that? And how much shall I give? It doesn't work like that. It's really, really quick. And for a lot of people, the System 1 reaction to donating cash is, oh, but is the money actually going to get there? That's kind of the thought. So obviously there are a lot of people who don't believe that and they, they donate lots of money very generously. Um, I think the, these the system one barriers that come up are things that need to be overcome. I think we've talked a lot, um, a lot of the panel members here, Jamie was talking about a, a streamlined mechanism, um, and I, I think, Mark, your example of the match $1 for dollar um, schemes, these are examples of things that work so well because they appeal to this system one processing. When it's easy for people, immediate, they don't have to think about it, they work very well. Um, and it also helps to correct some of these system one errors. Another two principles that I wanted to talk about, one called salience, which I'm sure is, takes no great science to understand, and the other is something called availability bias. Um, again, to this room, to this audience, it's no surprise that the, the more media coverage for a humanitarian crisis, the more donations we get. What we saw quickly to explain this, your salience is how much we notice something, how, how much it stands out, and particularly from our system one processing, how much we remember. Availability bias is very linked to this, but it's more about how we judge the probability of something based on how quickly we can bring it to mind. So to give you an example of this, um, there's a, a professor from the University of Jerusalem who was doing a study on whether long-term eating of McDonald's and drinking of Coca-Cola was more of a threat to your life than Al-Qaeda or ISIS. And you can imagine when he asked that question to people, people say, oh, it's definitely Al-Qaeda and ISIS. You are a thousand times more likely to, be, to have a threat to your life from long-term McDonald's and Coca-Cola drinking. So, again, this was really interesting in, in the work that we did. The awareness of the media, particularly the authorities in the media, people like the ABC that have already been referenced, it's very motivating in donating behaviour. So what is vital, though, in this equation is that there is clear authority, and, and Manisha touched on this as well, for who to donate to. What we saw in our studies at the moment, there's a bit of overwhelm. So people see the crisis, oh my goodness, it's terrible, I want to be able to help, how can I help? But then there's this overwhelm of who do I donate to, and which, which of these organisations has the most authority. Um, another bias is something called authority bias, which again is quite self-explanatory, but the authority of the NGO is very, very important. Um, what we've seen and what behavioural science has proven is that we alter our opinions and our behaviours based on our perception of, of authority. So one of the studies that's been done um, to, to prove authority bias is actually they had an experimenter who was asking passersby on the street to do a very simple, simple task. What they had him do is do that in plain clothes and address that exact same person into a uniform and ask those people to do exactly the same small task. And what you can see there is that when he's in plain clothes, the compliance rate is 42%. When he's in a uniform, the compliance rate is 92%. <laughs> same person, same tasks. So the point here is about 
very, very subtle, almost subconscious cues to authority have a disproportionate effect on behaviour. So I think that was the big insight, certainly from the study, is what is the cue for authority? And thinking about the joint funding mechanism going forward, how will authority be demonstrated? Is it in a name? Is it in a logo? Is it in colour? Is it in uniform? What are these things? What are the images? What are the words that demonstrate authority? Um, and finally, something called social norms, which I'm sure most of you would have heard of before, but we are all very, very influenced by what we perceive the norm behaviour to be. I think this is actually one of my favourite biases because, you know, I stand up here and I say, I'm an individual, you know, I'm a woman of my own mind, I make my own decisions. And I'm sure many of you here would think the same thing. Unfortunately, we're not. Behavioural <laughs> science has proven that we really do follow what we perceive other people to be doing. And often this happens at a very subconscious level. We're not actually conscious. So in the UK, they were trying to get people to pay their tax on time. They print on, on tax notices, 9 out of 10 people pay their tax on time. It sees a 15% increase in people paying their tax on time. <laughs> um, a similar example, and I'm sure you all see this now on your energy bills. When you get your energy bill, um, it tells you how, how well you're performing compared to your neighbours. So this is called a descriptive norm, and it's been incredibly effective at getting people to reduce their energy usage. Um, in fact, this particular study saw a 2% um, decrease in energy consumption, which doesn't seem like much, but that's, that's the equivalent to a family running their dishwasher 60 times less a year. So simply communicating what most people are doing is incredibly effective. Um, and I, I think also been a, there's a lot of science that's coming out at the moment around something called a dynamic social norm. So where you might have the joint funding mechanism at the beginning, where maybe not most people are doing it, just communicating that more and more people are starting to donate to, a, to whatever the joint funding mechanism is called can be incredibly impactful in, in getting those sorts of numbers that you're wanting to see. So hopefully that, that's my, my last slide. Hopefully that's given you a little bit of an introduction to behavioural economics and how it can be used um, in this context. Thank you very much, Mel. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. Um, we'll go to questions in a minute, but hopefully that's triggered some, some thoughts and reflections in terms of what that means for a joint funding mechanism and what that means for being able to ensure that we are engaging the public, because whether or not the joint funding mechanism works will be so dependent on how we do that, I think. Um, maybe just before we go to questions, I'd really like to just um, move into that forward-looking fa um, forward phase and thinking through what it is that we need to do to move the conversation constructively forward um, in Australia. So maybe um, just uh, asking each of the panel members to sort of provide a few suggestions around what they see as being the most constructive next steps. Um, and maybe we'll start with you, Jamie. Um, I'm just moving down. I was down hoping to go last, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but look, um, but maybe the quick, first thing I'd say is I... I um, agree with Mark that the match funding is a very powerful mechanism to raise funds and it's something government can bring and we know that it's a, a, a great asset with it. I don't necessarily... Um, I was in Africa at the time when the wanted Africa appeal happened and I, I'm not saying that I don't think it was doing it at times as a good thing. I don't think it's necessarily something we want to keep replicating and I'd also agree that the Hinga one is, was... was 
my view, it was better than nothing, but it's not where you want to be. And the reason I mentioned the Horn of Africa one is, if anything, and, and, and I really enjoyed Melissa's presentation, I'd be very keen to have a chance to sort of talk a bit more in depth on, on, on how it may be used in, in thinking of political economics with an email system. But the, the issue is that if, you, if we match funding to agencies as that, how much they donate, we're just doubling down on the problem, which is, you know, then if government's going to give a dollar, then we, we're going to double down our fundraise to make sure they're absolutely out there getting every single dollar they can because that's going to give us even, even more. And I think that's the point that I'm sort of trying to get at is that I think we've got to relook really at how raising money is, um, is then flowing to how money's used and meeting, meeting need. And I think there's clearly... Um, uh, that's uh, a key thing that any joint mechanism needs to be able to give greater confidence. And I think trust, because that is the question a lot of people ask, well, is this money going to get there, right? So how do they come to that decision? It's because, well, I've always funded World Vision, I've always funded Oxfam, I've always Red Cross. Well, that's probably quite a reasonable reason to say you want to give to them because you've got a relationship with them. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the money is going to be getting to the best... Um, need uh, respond bestly on, on, on the ground. And my view is humanitarian agencies should be ensuring that they're giving confidence to their donors that the money that is raised is going to be able to, as best as one can, ensure that it, that it meets me. Um, so I, I, um, I think uh, that's why the three things which we've highlighted need to be sort of taken forward is important. I want to be really clear. I mean, though people sort of think the government's pushing on this, we think there should be a joint mechanism. We think morally it's important at a time when there's limited, increasing amounts of need, limited funds, it needs to be there. But it's not our job to come up with it. Um, we went with the Rohingya situation because we felt that for too long nothing had been able to come forward. And we, need, we did want to look at a match funding arrangement and we went with those agencies which we had a relationship and confidence could, could deliver on. But if something comes to us uh, that answers those three fundamental questions, We'll, we'll be very uh, very open to it, uh, and I'm sure the Minister would be very sort of confident. So I think we're a catalyst, but we're certainly not uh, the driver in, in, in this one. Um, the one thing I think would be good is all of the chairs of the top CEOs to come together and maybe meet with Melissa and the behavioural economists and talk about what is the problem that they collectively want to solve and look at how that may then flow to new indicators and incentives for their CEOs and their staff and their boards, because I think that's what, that is one of the critical things that's got to change if we're going to sort of get to what we should need to. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Jamie. Manisha. So picking up on that, maybe I'll start with that at the end. I do think one of the things is getting the CEOs in the room, figuring out what is the problem that they need to solve and having that honest, transparent conversation saying that maybe starting with a six plus one wasn't ideal because it wasn't an open conversation with a broader NGO community, but really approaching it as it's a way to test it and then see how you bring the broader NGO community behind it. And I think when you're doing that testing of the pilot that's appearing <coughs> to go ahead, it, you need to very much look at what are the criteria that you're going to be looking at as those organizations doing the pilot, but then also moving ahead. Um, what are the indicators of capacity? Who is the best place to respond in a country? Is it you as an organization through your federation or is it through your national partners? But then you need to have standards in place. Are they adhering to SPHERE, to the core humanitarian standards, to humanitarian principles, to the NGO Red Cross Red Crescent Code of Conduct, perhaps the ACPED Code of Conduct, I'm not fully familiar with that, 
but really looking at what are the standards that we've been putting in place in the humanitarian community over the last 20, 30 years, and making sure that whatever mechanism you set up, organizations that are part of it are committed to that and they're able to report on it so that you're able to tell the public where your money is going, how it's being used, and being able to report back to them and saying thank you as well for their donations. And I think that's also an important thing is creating that relationship with the public under a joint mechanism so that they're able to see that there is that, that you can build up that trust. And I think that trust also amongst the NGOs is something that needs to be perhaps brought back. I mean, Jamie, you mentioned the competitive, and competitive environment. It's really fascinating for me having dealt with NGOs. And I know there's competition in a lot of places, but I've never been in a situation where people have talked about cage fights involved in the, the decision-making around who gets money under the DFAT HPA before. So I do kind of feel that there's a need to really bring back that collaboration and that coordination that should happen and removing that competitiveness, which I find really unfortunate because the competition isn't going to help you have better humanitarian responses on the ground. You're just going to burn your staff out if people are crying after decision-making meetings around who gets funding or not. And so that point about, you know, those indicators for CEOs having to raise more money are things where the board really needs to go back, and, or the boards, sorry, for these NGOs, and really saying, are we about raising money and, like, being competitive, or is it, can we collectively work together in order to have more, humanitarian, more effective humanitarian responses on the ground and that we're able to raise the sufficient funds in order to meet the needs that are growing across the board. And then I do think there needs to be um, also, once those are in place, conversations with the media, because if you don't get the media on board early on, it becomes extremely challenging. And the media is one of your best hooks into the public and being able to raise awareness. And then figuring out what are the other forms, not your traditional TV, radio only, but also what kinds of social media, how do you get people interested, not only in giving money, but getting that sort of awareness around meeting humanitarian needs. So really coming together, having the CEOs be very clear on the problem and being very forthright and transparent and honest. And then once all that's sort of figured out, having that broader NGO community come together and then presenting back to the government and saying, yes, please give us much funding when and where possible. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Kanisha. Peter. So look, I think there's going to be a recurring theme here, so I'll try not to repeat too many things. Taking it to the top of organisations, I think, is really critical because to move forward on this, it's, um, it, it's a leadership issue. And I think there needs to be demonstrable leadership to put the humanitarian imperative first. And I actually think in maybe in previous attempts, I'm not originally from Australia, I'm not sure the extent to which that was the driver. So how do we put the humanitarian imperative first and treat it like a moral obligation that we have? I think that will open uh, the discussion to uh, hopefully a more mature dialogue around what constitutes success. Uh, and I guess it goes to the point, what, what is the problem? But what could constitutes success in terms of raising funds, distributing funds, holding ourselves collectively accountable to those humanitarian outcomes? But inevitably, I think it is a challenge to um, organisations, <coughs> Red Cross included, to challenge our own business models around what, what are the measures of success. And I think we have to be prepared to let go. And it's not dissimilar in that respect to the localisation debate that we're having. Um, it, it, we have to try new approaches if we want better humanitarian outcomes in today's world. Thank you. Peter. That's great. Mel. Great, thank you. I think... There will certainly be a level of repetition. I think I'll try and come at this from a, from a behavioural point of view. I think 
when we're talking about problem definition, we would use the language of a behavioural objective. You know, what is it ultimately that this is trying to get people to do? Is it, is it to have a greater focus on humanitarian um, crises? Is it, is it to raise more money? But defining that. Um, I'm a big fan of the Charles Kettering quote of a problem well-defined is a problem half-solved. And <laughs> I feel like that's what this needs, you know, a, a lot of problem definition. And, and the way that we... The way that we come at things, of once you've got that, then you look at what is what are the things that are already triggering that behaviour. I'm sure there are things that you're all doing really well right now. So working out what those triggers are and then working out what the barriers are. What are the things that are, are not working well but are standing in the way? Because um, they need to be the focus points and obviously to dial up the things you're already doing well. I think from some of the things that Jamie was saying around um, perhaps performance indicators, you know, what are the defaults that are set in place at the moment that are perhaps causing some problems or causing some blocks, and how can you change those defaults? Um, I think the, the other point around that I think Manisha was talking around, transparency. So there's been some very interesting work coming out of Harvard University recently around building trust through transparency. So doing a number of scientific studies to look at, if and, and on simple things, the, the studies have been done around processes online, but just, you know, like a flight search engine. If you should, one, in one condition, they just say, searching for your flights. And the little wheel goes round. In the other condition, they say, searching for Singapore Airlines, searching for Qantas, searching for British Airways. In that condition, they get higher conversion, higher satisfaction. All the things go up just purely by communicating what you're doing while you're waiting. So there is an enormous, I think, amount to be said for what is called th tr building trust through transparency. Um, so they would be my, my pointers. Wonderful. Thanks. Mark. Um, what ACFID's attempting to do in this space, I think, is partly what Melissa is saying. We're trying to help our members define the problem. So really we're only talking probably about 15 or 18 at most of our uh, members that are very active or uh, consistently active in humanitarian response. Um, so we're both looking at the operational end. So like we're, we're hosting a Skype call with CEOs with the CEO of the deck tomorrow night just so they can, people can understand how that operates more. And we'd like to do that with the Canadians uh, soon. Secondly, we're convening a, uh, a conversation with uh, the CEOs of those organisations just to discuss the proposal that's gone to, to government uh, around from the HP plus the Red Cross, but also to sort of help clarify the problem further. Uh, I think for us, because it's such a small group of players, ultimately um, looking at how we can leverage the constituencies that uh, those organisations have, because uh, they, they do overlap, but they also are different in some cases. And I think that's important because any model that starts up, if it starts to uh, be seen or be felt to eat into the constituencies of other organisations as part of the disruption, uh, intended or unintended, uh, through market acquisition, I think that will create um, more competitive tension and more ill will uh, in the sector uh, as a whole and that, that we, we don't need more of that. We need to leverage the existing relationship with the national broadcaster, um, the ABC, because that's not a given. We've had a good... We've, it's been a sort of a slow building of trust and relationship in helping them to get to promote the, the, the code, which does incorporate the CHS and, and, and sphere requirements. And we want to be able to, to promote that. And we, we need that at this point in time because in the UK, what's happening with Oxfam Great Britain, there's not an equivalent of the ACFID code in the UK context where the organisations have voluntarily agreed to adhere to a whole range of policies and practices and have to demonstrate that regularly. Uh, 
So quality standards are going to be very important. And finally, I think we need to be very careful about uh, not... This is a small sector. It's not the 350 organisations in the UK uh, that are the development community, humanitarian community there. Um, it's smaller. There's, as I say, there's less than 20 in the humanitarian space. Anything, any mechanisms we put in place has to be sort of uh, scaled to the size of the sector. The, the debt, to me, has you know, many merits, but if we're going to create another layer of bureaucracy, uh, transaction costs, I mean, that doesn't... You know, what can we do in 2017, taking advantage of digital and new forms of communication that might make this a lighter exercise than the sort of a very elaborate process and systems that have developed in over 50 years in the UK? I think I think we need to look at that, and I know that, I know there's that's, there's a lot of agreement around that in the sector. That that sort of a heavy model is probably not the way we need to go. Great, thank you very much, Mark, and thank you um, everybody for the very frank and fearless um, reflections that you provided. I'm going to open it up now. We've got about half an hour, um, just to questions or comments. I might take two or three if there are other people. We'll start with you, and we'll yeah. Uh, hello, my name is Gerald Lover. I work in disaster risk reduction. Um, from a disaster risk management perspective, the, the mechanism we're talking about here is, is really high risk. So, uh, our reliance on it is 56% of funding from the private, from individuals, and only maybe 5% from the private sector. Um, so, particularly, um, it's really high risk when you're looking at humanitarian outcomes. Sorry, you know, actually, fundamentally thinking, probably the, the question is not the best question by placing this on response. By having response focus, then you miss out on humanitarian outcomes. Um, and also, the, uh, I'm now educated now that the process of using um, system one thinking uh, to attract this funding uh, reinforces that high risk component, uh, particularly when you have system two there, which is logical, sensible and will actually enable you to engage with the private sector uh, in a far more constructive way uh, and particularly get into risk reduction. And I think some of the things, comments that I've heard during the conference was the barriers of getting, uh, engaging with the private sector. The private sector is not interested in engaging on stage one activities, sorry, type one responses, that's my understanding. So, um, yes, my first comment there is that maybe potentially reframing question for the future, and I think it's around uh, not for response, but for uh, disaster management, disaster risk management, that sense, uh, may enable a uh, more broader and uh, more broad base to give you, my personal to give you better humanitarian outcomes, because you haven't, you're not in belief. The impact hasn't occurred. Once the impact has occurred, we actually already have a humanitarian outcome. Yeah, great. Thanks, Daryl. Um, any other questions, comments? Yeah? Uh, yes, um, Takeshi from Japan, um, from CLS Japan and ADRN. We're having a similar discussion in Japan as well. Um, natural disasters, it's not much more so to raise money from the public. Conflict, non existent. So we have to rely a lot on the Ministry of Foreign Affairs funds. Um, from the behavioral science perspective, why do you think that's so? that people give less when it comes to conflict, but people give more when it comes to natural disasters. And Manisha, if, uh, if there's any good practice within the Emergency Alliance um, on how to raise more uh, public support around the uh, conflict uh, teams, that would be great to you know, thanks. 
Great, and we'll just take one more and then we'll let the panel respond. Yes. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Also related to our first uh, wave of you mentioned about uh, the increasing need, but diminishing funds or uh, just uh, decreasing funds. Uh, Peter, you mentioned about uh, not just about how to raise funds jointly, but also how to uh, the effective use of this uh, response. So um, now. Definitely one of the solutions, and as I think you mentioned, it's one of the solutions is joint funding modality, but that's not the only solution. Especially, I think, the whole integrated kind of funding mechanism, I think that's what is needed. And uh, I can give an example for Bangladesh, southwest part of Bangladesh, especially three districts with over uh, one million population were affected by waterlogging since 2004, and it went on for over a decade. And ECO was financing the response in this area. And after spending about 24 million euros, then started having the discussion with the NGOs, how do you also not just look at relief response, but also look at uh, adaptation to water logging and risk reduction and living with that with flood. Every year it was uh, happening, but some years when, when there was more uh, rainfall, it would be extremely bad. Other years it was less. So there, there was already this uh, practice, and then there, there's also practice of uh, having consortium. In Bangladesh, there are already consortium. There are two NGO consortium. So Manisha, um, you talked about the competition among the it's, it's not really healthy. The whole humanitarian space and uh, the consortium approach was it worked quite well because then the NGOs that have that expertise, who have local presence in those areas, work together on a proposal, submitted the proposal and implemented. So these kind of approaches have worked. Uh, also, two years back, DFID uh, has initiated this disaster resilience funding in Bangladesh. Also, other donors have started uh, putting money there. And this is open to NGOs, open to UN agencies. So this is really a good way of, uh, kind of working together jointly. But again, joint funding, of course, encourages joint planning, maybe coordination and response. But again, uh, it should also we should also look at integrated capacity or integrated funding, where you're not just looking at relief and response, but you're also looking at addressing some of the root causes. Like if if we don't do that, look at the case of the water logging. Ten years, twenty-four million euro just from uh, EU. Uh, other there were other donors who also provided funding just from ECO, twenty-four million dollar. So uh, there is no end to it. So not just about joint funding, integrated approach, uh, and long-term solution. Great, thanks. Manisha, I might throw over to you first, both in terms of whether or not there are any mechanisms that look more at the DRR rather than just the response and how to incorporate some of um, Daryl's comments. Um, and yet also maybe the point around the conflict and the extent to which mechanisms arise more of conflict. Yeah, I mean, basically most of the joint appeals mechanisms focus on emergencies because it's much easier to raise funds from the public for that. The point about trying to get money for DRR, totally taken. But it is very hard to raise money. It's a bit like raising money in a conflict or in a conflict situation. Much more challenging. The thing that is really good about the money that you raise in the joint appeals mechanism is it's incredibly flexible. It is not earmarked like a lot of donor money is. So you do have the opportunity to use that money not only for just the immediate emergency. Most of the funding that the appeals mechanisms use, it's for emergency and then relief to recovery. Like the money can be spent over three years in most of the cases. 
So that does give you the opportunity, as you were just saying, to look at sort of what is the recovery? How do you bring other development actors in to change behavior adaptation? So there is that flexibility. And it's one of the things wearing my consultant hat, I just did a review of the DEC's uh, members, their 13 members implementation of phase one in Bangladesh. And one of the things they consistently said is the flexibility of DEC money is fabulous. The fact that we can kind of put it in where other donors are not giving us money. A lot of donors will front load the money. You've got to spend it in the first three months. The flexibility that you get with appeals money, joint appeals money, is really good about kind of bridging those funding gaps, looking at where the needs are, and being able to adapt your programming that way and fill in those gaps. So that's a huge thing. But yeah, I think once you get uh, the public kind of on board with an appeals mechanism, and then you can start that education process around that if you invested more in DRR, you might be able to get that money there. But it is an education process, I think, so that the public understands that if you spend that $1 in disaster <coughs> risk reduction, you would not have to spend X number later on. But I think that's generally across the board a huge challenge for us as a community. In terms of good practice, across the board, it's again, Japan is not the only country where it's more challenging to raise money in long short, uh, conflict situations or slow onset disasters. So what many have done is really looking at different avenues of raising the interest of the public, bringing celebrities on board. Celebrities do have a big pull, um, really talking about why it's important to give money and what's happening and why the public should be engaging and giving money. Taking journalists out and really being able to tell a number of the stories of individuals so that the public understands what's happening and kind of getting that, that much more um, personal connection so that they understand that Someone is suffering, they're a civilian, they had nothing to do with this conflict, and yet they're facing the consequences. Uh, having a national day where there's a lot of, you know, people have been using bloggers, uh, ones that are interacting much more with youth, social media, there's one in, the, in um, Holland, they tried to do a gaming event one day to raise money for one of the slow onset disasters. And that, well, they didn't realize what an investment it is to set up all the technology to make sure that you can have like a professional gamer come in and play against all these people. It's a whole other world for me, but really kind of figuring out how do you draw in the youth as well, or people that normally wouldn't give, and trying to identify what are the hooks that can bring them in. Um, so I do think there's lots of different ways that you can do it, but it is really about engaging the public so that they understand what's happening and that your money is not going to those who are fighting the conflict, but the individuals and the civilians that have been caught up in it. I think that's very important as well. Um, yeah, I think that was it. Great. Thank you. And Mel, I think there was a question very much targeted to you in terms of why is it that it was more difficult to, to raise funding in, in conflict situations than natural disaster? Absolutely. And I think, Manisha, a lot of the things that you've just said, the, the, some of the terms that we would use from behavioural science, so there's something called identifi identifiable victim effect, um, you know, it's, it's where we have a lot more empathy for, for one person or for a particular situation that we can kind of familiarise with versus ones that we can't, um, which I'm sure you see play out in the media all the time. You know, when you talk about statistics, nobody cares when it's the story of one individual child. It's obviously much more effective. Um, I think linked to that uh, are anchor points, or reference points, the way that we all make decisions and, and how people anchor to a natural disaster versus a conflict um, comes back to this system one processing again. So I'm, I'm hypothesizing here, but with a conflict, is, is the system one reaction to that, that if I give money to that, that there's more corruption in that environment? I don't know. You know, versus a natural disaster where perhaps there's less. Um, I think linked to that is also priming imagery. 
So the way that we priming acts at a very subconscious level, none of us can consciously talk about how we've been primed, but the imagery that's associated with a conflict versus that of a natural disaster is very, very different, um, eliciting different behavioural responses. So I think there would be a number of different biases that you could explore to kind of unpack that difference. Did anybody else on the panel, particularly to this idea around the integration program as well? well yeah. I've got a couple of comments to make. Maybe start with Daryl's point. Um, I don't see this working in isolation from the broader humanitarian system and how it needs to work more effectively. Humanitarian crises cost the planet about 250 to $300 billion a year. So anything that we can do to reduce risk, we should. I think the implications for us here are, you know, how do we have a fundamental shift towards reducing risk? But we're not going to be able to stop disasters, natural disasters from happening. So we also need to look at how we collaboratively improve that response. I think the implications are, though, if in terms of DRR we're investing, for example, in building strong local actors, how do we ensure that a joint funding mechanism doesn't then bypass those local actors but seeks to reinforce and build upon the strengths that they have? I think that would be one immediate uh, implication. The conflict one is um, a fascinating one. Red Cross as many of you will know, works in about 190 countries. So pretty much every conflict you'll see Red Cross, Red Crescent. But it is astonishingly difficult to raise funds for conflict over natural disasters. Uh, and to put that into a practical example, we raised more money in three days for the cyclone in Vanuatu than we did in the first three years of our appeal for Syria, one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world. So it's against that context, and we've also done some behavioural economics assessment around this, looking at, well, why, why do these issues not resonate with the Australian public? And the, and the concept of proximity keeps coming up. You know, people care about things which are proximate to them, be that geographical proximity, what's happening in their neighbourhood, or metaphorical proximity, which is, you know, I've been to Vanuatu on a holiday. It's nearby. It's seen as something which is, uh, you know, people are innocent victims of a of a natural disaster as opposed to um, caught up in man-made conflict. Um, so there's a lot of nuancing in terms of how we have to change our messages to try to make things like that resonate more. Because there is a misalignment between some of the humanitarian need out there where there are huge funding gaps and in some cases the risk of getting too much money for other crises and how do we spend that responsibly. Mics are open to questions again, and please also feel free, if you have ideas in terms of next steps, please feel free to offer those as well. Yes. Um, Hi, Josh Borough from Oxfam. Um, it sounds like some of the problems we're talking about centre on trust. Is it trust from the public about how we spend our money, or trust between NGOs about how that money is used? Uh, Oxfam in Australia and globally is exploring the role of blockchain technology in how it can be used to help build that trust and transparency, trust through transparency. Um, specifically in the Australian context with cash programming in the Pacific, I'd just like the panel's reflection on possibly using a, a different mechanism to increase some of that trust. Thanks, Josh. Question in terms of the competition between NGOs, I mean on the fundraising side, absolutely that's one, one part of it. But there's also competition on the resource distribution side um, through the humanitarian cluster system and the prioritization of um, expenditures. I'm wondering how this sort of joint appeals deals with that when you've got um, a pot of money and you've got 
a lot of challenging challenges already within putting a humanitarian appeal together about where that money gets allocated, whether education or shelter or, or health is prioritised in the short term. Uh, so how, how is that dealt with? And related, for most NGOs being dual mandated in that they've got ongoing development programs that they're running in, and often they're specialising their fundraising around a, a certain aspect um, that's related to the long-term long development, like plan um, with, with girls or, um, you know, I mean, well, you guys know better than me, but how does that actually then work when you're shifting into the humanitarian space and saying, let's just raise for the crisis, but not for the specialised kind of areas of their work? Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, um, Elsa from Oxfam, I think my question is quite similar around the how, so perhaps um, Manisha can give a few examples from some of the 11 other joint appeal mechanisms, but um, agencies have particular brands and obviously um, target audiences and ways of communicating, and often that relates to their particular programming, whether it be child-focused or gender or, or wash emergencies. So how have other appeals decided on those kind of um, key messages, particularly when you don't necessarily know who will be implementing and so therefore what sectors or types of approach they'd be using. Um, and also to the, I guess, criteria around the use. I mean, I've been a part of the HPA cage fighting and uh, <laughs> understand and, and, and your point around the maturity required by the sector, I wonder if you've had some thoughts around how we would go about that and potentially use it as an opportunity for um, you know, agreed approaches to localised responses or potential indicators around um, when people would be best placed to utilise the funds. Thanks, Elsa. I might take one more question. I think that's all. Yeah. Two questions before I wanted to ask. The fund, the mechanisms that you're talking about, um, the discussions are very much focused around uh, crisis appeals, which are obviously in their nature short term. Um, but, but a joint fund, uh, so I guess there's some difference between a joint funding mechanism and a joint fund. And a joint fund has the ability to um, use capital and create growth for when the appeal mechanisms don't through for whatever reason, public interest or, or whatever. So has there been any consideration in these discussions uh, about some mechanism that could do both, that uh, could create a joint fund which has the capacity for growth to fund gaps, as well as um, the appeals funding and the distribution of that. And there was a related question about um, is the problem really about joint funding or is it about um, the fragmentation of effort and distribution post Great. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, Jamie, were there any aspects around the, the sort of trust or the competition aspects you wanted to pick up on? Well, those? Um, well I think they're all really good questions. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe just quickly on the, uh, on this, the, the name for Boxdam, sorry. Josh. Josh. Uh, yeah, I mean, frankly, like um, the day where we can have a situation where we have, um, and I'm not suggesting this is the perfect world, but an environment where we're able to assess and understand the need of community sector by crisis and we can channel resources as directly to people as possible, has got to be the best outcome. And if one agrees that's the best outcome, then a whole lot of questions come about who's needed to be part of that or not. And I think the blockchain is a, a real example. I mean, I'll give you an example. I remember during the tsunami, the Asian tsunami, I had my, my uh, brother-in-law who said to me, look, you know, who should I give? I want to give $100, who should I give $100 to? I sort of said, well, you know, you can tell me, 
Actually, look, could you just take the hundred dollars and just give it to somebody there? And I'm like, yeah. Jesus, yeah, you can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> that that is what the evidence now tells us is the best outcome in response to humanitarian crisis, right? And so the problem is we've still got architectures that are built around 30, 40 years ago, and they're they're resulting in these two problems. We're raising money to be able to demonstrate how we as an agency are the best agency to deliver on that. And then we have architectures that are put in place to ensure that we're justifying how we can demonstrate that that money has then brought about the best outcome. And so a cash program doesn't actually need a humanitarian agency, it just needs a good IT organisation and a good sort of financing thing. And so I'm not arguing we don't need humanitarian agency anymore. I just think we need to start asking him what is the problem we're trying to solve here and do we need to relook really at things. And I don't I think there are lots of lessons that we can draw from other, other organisations. But I'd like to think that Australia, we're, we're better than the rest. I would think that we should be able to come up with something that is reflecting on experiences today, but we're going to say, what do we think that collective Australia we can bring the best outcome on? And it's based on the challenges, the technology, the environment we've got today. And that's what I think a joint mechanism is coming to your point is actually not, they're not mutually exclusive. It's trying to find ways to build trust and confidence that we can raise the most money from the Australian community in response to both natural disasters and protracted crises. And my view is on conflicts. If the public have a view, you'll never raise as much money for a, for a man-made man disaster. But if the public have a view that this is um, funds that are collectively coming to meet that need, you'll, you'll raise more money, absolutely. Right? But it's also then trying to ensure the way that is driving the types of reforms and that's what we think that we need on the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks, Jamie. And Mark, I know you had a couple of points on that um, as well. Look, I, I just wanted to make um, two points. And, and in doing so, I wanted to acknowledge uh, Jamie's earlier point about getting effective uh, and Peter's uh, effective humanitarian response on the ground and all that entails getting the right responders. And also that to acknowledge that there's a variety of... Uh, uh, modalities, as Manisha said, that you know we can learn from that exists, and you know, and so I'm, I'm I'm sort of agnostic and keen to learn, and I think that you know the sector is too. But taking up Mrs. Um, point about human behaviour, uh, for thirty or more years we've been told the market is more efficient. We have a whole range of organisations in Australia that have uh, grown and flourished in that market. We're now saying, and, and the boards of those economically significant ones are run often, you know, a private sector people who believe in the market but bring their business skills to those not-for-profit organisations. So we're saying, okay, the market is not more efficient and we should actually somehow centralise and collaborate more. Now, I'm open to that because I work in an organisation that kind of centralises and collaborates with not-for-profits. But my point is, if you're taking the path of least resistance, then you would want to recognise that 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 prevailing market ethos is out there at the board level down and it's going to be a hard ask to, to get people to change their thinking behaviour in any real quick time. So let's, work, let's go with what we know has worked. And the two matched funding uh, appeals, so the most recent one for the, the Hinga and the, the East Africa, Horn of Africa one, one for a conflict situation, the other for a slow onset situation, both very difficult to fundraise for generally, have raised significant amounts of money because the government came in. That works with your point about adding the authority of the government to the brands of the organisations, which do have market cachet with the public. The other point is a moral point about the humanitarian imperative. Um, the government has taken the Australian aid program, the Abbott government, not the Turnbull government, the Abbott government took the Australian aid program to its lowest levels ever. And there is a shortfall in humanitarian funding. 
And I think the public are being asked to, to make up for that, and I think that's, that's reasonable. But I think the moral imperative is actually for the government to put back matched funding to help rebuild what was taken away. And then you do that collaboratively with the NGOs to, to reach and reach out, and people will uh, respond with their wallets, dollar for dollar. Thanks, Mark. Um, I'll just go to Manisha next, maybe, because there were some very specific questions, Manisha, around um, how, other appeal, how other appeals are deciding on joint messages, some of the questions that Elsa was asking. So when you have a joint mechanism, you don't lose your own individual marketing and your messages to your public. Those continue. And I think that's maybe one of the myths to dispel. You go under an appeal for a certain period of time. You agree as the NGOs with it and the Red Cross within it, if you're there, that you will have a specific, clear message, but it's a very general one. You don't get into who's doing what kind of programming. You don't get it to that level of detail. A joint mechanism has the beauty of being very clear, top-line messages, and then that lets all the individual organizations continue with their day-to-day -day appeals that they would have. So oftentimes, the individual NGOs will launch an appeal first, especially when it's a slow onset or conflict. And then when the joint appeal comes together, it's like a two to three week period where you do co-branding. So you basically will brand with that overall umbrella. You'll have a common hashtag, for example. You'll have a common title. You really kind of get people to think about the crisis or the disaster. And then you continue on with your own funding. So as a result, you'll still get your own money potentially as individual NGOs or the Red Cross. But you also then still have that joint mechanism being able to take funds in as well. So you're basically hitting the market from different sides throughout the crisis, which kind of raises the point that it's not necessarily a short-term appeal, um, as was said, because the natural disasters are a short-term event, but conflicts and slow onset disasters, there's uh, appeals that have been open for years. I mean, the Syrian crisis, refugee crisis, many of the appeals mechanisms have had open uh, appeals for years now. So they've been raising money since 2013, for example. Same with... Um, the refugee crisis in Europe, many of them had uh, appeals that were open for a long time. So really, I think the opportunity then that comes back to this deciding about where the money comes from, and that's one of the key things you need to decide well before an appeal. Most of them will decide on a distribution mechanism, a distribution key, as they call it, well in advance. That can be based on the amount of private funding you've raised over a three-year period average. It can be based on your capacity to actually implement generally speaking, because you do have to kind of base it on a general thing if you're going to set in place that criteria of how you're going to distribute in advance. And then per crisis, you can look at it and then say, okay, who's actually there? Who's actually going to be doing what kind of programming? But then it's very much off, and it depends on the on the appeals mechanism. The DEC, for example, will just take your plans and you say what you're going to do as an organization. They don't approve it. There's already been an agreement that you're going to get X amount of money. You just have to report on it. Whereas the Swiss, I believe, they will look at projects individually. So it's about deciding what's the best place for you as an Australian market. Uh, hopefully you are better than the rest and that you can learn from their mechanisms and you'll have an even better mechanism. Um, we shall see. <laughs> but it is that. So you keep your target population as individual organizations. You don't lose that. And then you as organizations can prioritize where that money goes. So it's completely separate from the interagency appeal that may take place in country. Individual organizations within that appeals mechanism can say this is where we're going to spend our money also because you know that that may be an area where you don't get defat money for example or you don't want to put your on your own private donations or that area where you feel there's a need so that flexibility and then your marked element of the money is super important as well 
Um, and then in, this, in the sense of having a joint fund, or in, as, as Jamie said, it's, it's not an, an exclusive thing. You can come up with a blended financing mechanism, essentially. So you could have a pooled fund. And I mean, the pooled fund in Canada, for example, is complementary to their joint appeals mechanism. And it's brilliant because they will literally sit around the table. They have that trust where they will then look at who's best placed, where the NGOs themselves will say, actually, you're better placed. So you take the money. Maybe that's because we're Canadians and we're really nice. <laughs> but honestly, they've built that trust up where they will literally withdraw their proposal and say, no, you can do a better job because you will have a better outcome than we will. So learn from Canada. <laughs> um, Mel, I might just hand it to you if you had any particular reflections on those last I think I just questions. wanted to make one comment at the risk of sounding overly simplistic. I think... Uh, Often we go into businesses and organisations who are do, dealing with very, very complex issues and I think get very caught up in those complex issues and forget to feed back to the people or the, the customers that they're interacting with. So I think when this mechanism gets, or if this mechanism, don't know what the right language is there, gets up and running, um, it, the point of feeding back, so telling people where their money has gone to, what's happened, communicating with people, even in really simplistic ways, is so important in, in creating the habit and the right behaviour that you want to drive futuristically. Thanks, ma'am. Peter, any reflections on the last sort of set of questions or closing comments? Um, I think leadership is key. We got to have, there's an old expression, perfect is the enemy of better. And I think maybe to the, the point around complexity, if we don't actually start something and test it, we're going to be debating this in maybe another mm. 20 years. Um, as long as the humanitarian imperative is there, I think we can uh, make progress. I think we should be aiming for the disintermediation. I think this, uh, the, the current architecture I think should be challenged. We work in, you know, we all know that we work in volatile, complex times with a lot of disruption. If we're seeking just to try to make our current models operate within that environment, I think we'll fall short. Um, so uh, Manisha said at the start, you know, I think she used the term borrow or steal. You know, I think there is something in my mind around not just importing a solution and trying to make what we have fit but aspire, seeking to solve the problem, aspiring to do something better. So I have in my mind leap, leapfrog and improve uh, and do something which does really address the current concerns. Thank you very much. Um, and what a great way to finish, leapfrog and improve. Yeah. <laughs> we could all kind of do that on our way out, maybe. Um, <laughs> um, but really, a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much to the panel members and to everybody um, for your participation. And I think I'm probably, I haven't actually run this past Manisha. My experience of trying to get Manisha engaged is if I just pester her enough, she says yes. <laughs> so I want to share that with you because she works for the Emergency Appeals Alliance. Her job is to help supporting countries that are trying to set up joint funding mechanisms. So I guess my final plea would be is to use her, um, harass her. She'll forgive me at some point. Um, but, but, you know, she, she has this wealth of experience, so let's draw on it. Um, but let's thank all our panel members. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.